We're going to get started. Glad y'all are here tonight. Glad you made the effort to be here tonight. Tonight is our, our eighth lesson in the series. We're just moving along bit by bit, stacking on the information that we put together last week. Tonight our lesson is entitled, A Sinner's Rescue. A Sinner's Rescue. I want to start off by reminding us or having us think about the fact uh, as we move along, God is revealing himself to us through Scripture. I think we need to always remember that. God is showing us himself, revealing himself to us in Scripture. Sometimes we get caught up in the account, or we get caught up in the people of the account, or we get caught up in the specifics of the account, and we should do those things. We should see those things, but we, but we also ought to be asking the question, uh, what is God showing us about himself in these verses? What do we learn about God in these verses? And so sometimes we get caught up in, well, what about Noah? What about Lot? What about Abraham? And we really need to be thinking about what is God showing us about himself uh, in this account? Well, tonight we come to really, I don't know how to say it, but a pretty wild account, maybe sometimes a misapplied account, and really a hard account for us to work through. And you look through it, uh, there are some hard things that take place here. But what we see in these verses tonight, God shows his love for sinners by compassionately leading them away from sin. And we're going to see what that means, several pieces of that. But God shows us his love for sinners by compassionately leading them away from sin. We have a pretty good chunk of verses again tonight. We're in Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 20. And I'm going to read to chapter 19, verse 29. Now, as I have been doing, I'm going to read the whole section of verses, and then we'll come back and pull our lesson out of that. So, again, tonight, a big section of verses, Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, working our way through chapter 19, verse 29. All right, chapter 18, verse 20. Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. It says this, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account for forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and shall I speak? Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if 30 are there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. 
And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because of their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, the hand of his wife and of his two daughters, and the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape with your life. Do not look behind you. And do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zor. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 
But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went out to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. All right, there's a whole lot there, uh, more than we'll have time to look at tonight. We're going to pull some important things out of that account, but, but really we're just going to try to, to, to see what we see about God and what we see about the gospel as it expands as we move through Scripture. First thing we see this, the first point is this, sin always escalates. Sin always escalates. Now you've heard me say that a whole bunch of times. We see it again in this account. Let me walk you through some pieces of that. First thing is this. Sin is gross. Sin is gross. And I, a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, I was writing this lesson, and I thought, what is a better word than that? Surely there's a better word than sin is gross. Now, you read that account, that's, that's pretty gross. Sin is ugly. Sin is vile. Sin is repulsive. In, in chapter 18, verse 20, God says their sin was exceedingly grave, serious, death-ridden. Sin is gross. Now, I want you to think for just a second. What, what word could you put in there? What word could you use to describe sin? Now, here's the thing we need to start to see as we move through the account. That is talking about all sin. That is talking about the totality of sin. Here's the deal. We make light of some sins. We make heavy of some other sins. We have some system where we begin to rank sin. And so this is not as bad, and this is, a, is, is not quite as bad, and this is the worst sin up here of all. We even start to accept some sin over other sins. And I was thinking about that. In, in our natural practice, we start to say, you know what, I would rather you cheat on your taxes than for me to come out and find that you actually robbed a bank with a gun. Both of those are theft. Both of those are a sin. But it's not quite as bad if you do that in your house and we do not know about it. We actually start to accept some sin over other sin. We start to prefer some sin over other sin. And yet the truth is this. Sin is gross. Results in death. Always brings destruction. All sin is gross. Second thing we see in our, our study tonight is this. Sin becomes all-consuming. Sin becomes all-consuming. Sin always takes over. It, it's, it's like a weed in your garden. It always takes over. Sin always grows. Think about, we're only eight weeks in. Think about the pattern we've already seen. Here's man. Man falls into sin. Man enters into sin, and sin escalates. We get to the days of Noah, and it says man's thought at all times are thinking about sin and how to escalate sin and how to think of new ways to sin. And so God judges sin in the days of Noah, really cleans the earth off, wipes it out, even the trace of it. And you know what? Here we are back here again. And I, I sit there and go, 
Did somebody not tell their grandkids about that event? Did somebody not tell their grandkids, grandkids about that event? Did somebody not say, God can't stand sin and he's serious about sin? Sin brings, sin brings death and yet a little becomes a little becomes a little. We're exactly back there again. They're all consumed in sin. Think about the mob here. Here's the mob at the gate and they're frothed up and they've, they really are on the verge of a riot. They've gathered up. Sin becomes all-consuming. Our sin, left unchecked, will become all-consuming. Here's the next thing we see. Sin is gross. Sin becomes all-consuming. Here's the next thing. Sin draws others in. Now, when you, when you read the account, notice it said the young and the old. It said all of the city. In fact, it said all the regions of the city. When you read that in the original language, it, it basically means this, all the neighborhoods of the city. Now, what does that mean? It's no different than today. You know who's there? The rich neighborhood. You know who's there? The poor neighborhood. You know who's there? The baker is there. You know who's there? The politician is there. You know who's there? The farmer is there. The young, the old, the entire city, the neighborhoods of the city are all pulled in. Sin always draws others in. Left unchecked, one will become two. And two will become four, and four will become eight. And eight will become 16, and 16 will come into a culture of sin. It always draws others in. There's several pieces of that to think about. One of it, um, we're attracted to sin. We, we naturally go that way. That's part of it, but part of it is and, and maybe you've noticed this, sin likes company. You know what, if I'm going to do something wrong, I'm glad if you'll do it with me. And if I'm going to do something wrong and you'll do it with me, I'm glad you're doing the same thing. Sin likes company. We're not judged if everybody's doing the same thing. We don't feel conviction if everybody's doing the same thing. Sin draws others in. Sin is gross, all of it. Sin becomes all-consuming. It'll take over. Sin draws others in. It always escalates. All right, from there, we're going we're to look at the case of Lot. And really, this is a case study in sin. We're going we're to survey this situation. We're going to see what has happened to Lot. And we're going to basically have a case study in sin through the person of Lot. All right, here's what happens with Lot. Think about the verses. Think about the account. Here's what happens. The first thing that happens to Lot is he becomes apathetic towards sin. He becomes apathetic towards sin. Now, let me explain that. He becomes indifferent to sin. He becomes numb to sin. He's not worried about sin. He's not bothered about sin. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Think about this. Here is this city, and really these two cities in this region, and they're consumed in wickedness. He lives there. He doesn't have to stay there. He could move away. He stays there. In the midst of wickedness, there you find him. He stays there. Not only that, he raises a family there. Not only that, he has a wife that he sends to the market there. Here's a wild and wicked city, and you know what? I'm not going to protect her. She's going to go to the market here. 
Not only that, his daughters are raised there. He has daughters. And you know what? He's so numb to sin, so indifferent to sin, he doesn't say, well, we've got kids now. We might ought to think about somewhere else to live. He raises his daughters there. Guess what his daughters do? They find husbands there. The, the men she's going to marry, they came out of there. They are indifferent, apathetic towards sin. It is all around him. It becomes normal. Now, if we have any sense, that's got to start sinking into us. It's all around us. It becomes normal. It becomes just the thing. It is all around us. First thing he did is he became apathetic towards sin. Second thing is this. He became attracted to sin. He became attracted to sin. Now, notice in the account, when it's time to leave, this is really unimaginable. The, the two angels come and say, be ready to leave. Get up. They actually say, get up. It's time to leave. To not be swept away in God's judgment. That's an exact quote. This place is about to be judged. It's about to be swept away. Get up. Let's go out of here not to be swept away in God's judgment. Did you notice this? It says, and he hesitated. He actually starts to think, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe he won't actually do this. He, the two angels are saying, we got to go. And Lot pauses and says, maybe it's, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not that bad. He actually pauses and begins to weigh it out. I was thinking about that today. How sad that we start to weigh sin. Well, what's the cost of that? Well, who does it offend? Well, I think God will get over that. He actually pauses and hesitates. Now, not only that, that's what he does. His wife, they're leaving. They're fleeing. And, and the command is don't look back. Well, his wife looks back. Guess what she does? What are we leaving? Maybe it's not that bad. I don't understand this. She, in the same way that he hesitates leaving, she turns back and looks back. The son-in-laws, this is crazy. They stayed. They actually stayed. Guess what they were? Swept away. They thought he was joking. He says that you're jesting. They thought it was a joke, and they stayed. So guess what? The son-in-law stayed. The wife turns back. Lot hesitates. They became attracted to sin. Living surrounded by it, it starts to become attractive to them. And then the last thing I put is this. They became active in sin. Now, there's a lot of things that we could take away from that. I want to talk about one subject, and I, I think... Um, we do a disservice when we skip this subject. I want to talk about one event right here. He became active in sin. And that is the event where he says, here, take my daughters and do them as you please. That seems crazy. That seems absolutely crazy. Lot says, don't take them, take my daughters and do as you please. Now, let me just tell you, and you may have heard this, there are people that have done all sorts of work to try to make Lot look good in that, to look justified in that. And, and there's whole books and, and things written saying, 
Well, it was a culture of hospitality. And if they didn't show hospitality, if they allowed their guests to be hurt, it would reflect poorly upon him. And there's folks that say, well, that's what it was. There's others say that there's a Hebrew teaching that the sojourner at your gate, that you're supposed to take care of him. And he was so convinced that this was the command of God that he was going to keep it up. Well, I wonder why he's living in the neighborhood anyway. There's that idea. There's others saying, well, he was trying to protect the angels. He, he maybe realized they were angels and he was trying to protect them. Let me just cut through all of that and just say this. It was none of that. It was none of that. Do you know what that was when he offered his daughters? It was vile, it was wicked, it was sinful, and it was despicable. He's the head of that house. These are his daughters, and he offered them up. It was despicable, and it was wrong, and it was vile, and it was a sin, and you can try to make him look good. He doesn't look good. That is a despicable event. Now, what is he trying to do? He's trying to trade one sin for another sin. You know what? This one I might can explain. This one the culture will accept. He, he literally is trying to say, here is a sin, and we'll trade it out for this other sin. It is vile. It is wicked. It is sinful. It is despicable. Now, I want you to think about that progression, and I want you to think about our culture. Become numb to sin, apathetic to sin. Become attracted to sin and become active in sin. And then actually start trying to trade out sins for other sins. Is that not the exact same thing that we see today? We sit in sin. We listen to it on the radio. We see it on TV. We say, well, we understand that's just fake. We, we, we hear certain language. We're surrounded by it. And then we become attracted to it. And it's not long before we fall and we're active in sin. We read that account and go, that's crazy. That's despicable. That's nuts. Is that not the twin of our day? We are so saturated with sin, it doesn't even raise a flag anymore. We're so attracted to sin that we hesitate. If somebody says this is a sin, we hesitate as we leave it, and then we march just in it, just like he did as well. That is the progression. Same conclusions today. All right, so that's the survey of sin through this case study of Lot. Now let's go back to our original question. What do we see of God in this account? And that's the big thing. What do we learn about God in this account? And we see here, it doesn't seem like it. As Abraham gets up that next morning, he's standing there, and smoke is rising up out of the valley. I don't know the first thing we say is, that's a compassionate God. But actually, that is a compassionate God. And let me, let me show you how. The first thing we see is this. In this event we see how compassionate God is. Doesn't seem likely, but that's the truth. He is compassionate. Let me show you why. First thing is this, because he warns us of sin. Our compassionate God warns us of sin. God says at the start of this, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That was his command to them. It is a blessing to be told this is wrong. This is bad. This will hurt. This will not end well. Stay away from this. That is a blessing. When God says, this is a sin, this is bad, this will hurt you, that is a blessing. In the same way, it is a blessing when God says, do these things. Be sure and always do that. 
Listen, that's not legalism. We, we rail against that. It's not a heavy burden that God puts on you. It's not a duty that you have to check off every day. It is a gracious thing. Sometimes we think obedience, obeying God, is a way to prove your commitment, to prove your resolve. Now, I think your obedience grows as you know Christ, as you walk with him more deeply. But sometimes we think, check it, check it, got to do this, got to do this. I got to prove these things. Listen, here's the truth. It is a good, kind, compassionate God that warns us of sin. That is a good God that says, that's not going to end well for you. That is a gracious, compassionate God. Here's my question. You can holler out, do we see it that way? Do we see it that way? Anybody can answer? I think, I think the truth is we say, well, here you are with your rules. God says, you know what, this is the best way to live as a married couple. God says this is the best way to handle your finances. God says this is the best way to raise your kids. And we start getting a little bit, well, I, I don't know if I'm going to submit to that. I don't know if I agree with that. We may say we agree with that. We don't, we, in practice, we do not like that. We're going to play a game right here, and, and I'm going to volunteer Robbie to help me out. If Robbie, you'll come help me out. We're going to play a game right here called Cat and Mouse. This is a mouse trap. Watch this. That's a mouse trap. And these are M&Ms. Those are two different things, a mouse trap and M&Ms. All right, here's the game. I'm going to have Robbie stand right here and face out. And I'm going to put one of these two things in this box. <laughs> and then he gets to reach in there, and, and you're going to go home with peanut M&Ms or a broken finger. One of those two things. Cat and mouse. Now, talk about a thrilling lesson now. That's pretty thrilling. We're either going to break Robbie's finger or he's going to go home with M&Ms. Now, here's the deal. You're going to see which one I put in there. And then you're going to get to tell him. Now, here's the thing about who tells you. Some of them might want you to break your finger. You have to trust who's telling you. That's a pretty big thing. Look at who's out here. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you not going to listen to? Who's going to laugh if you get this? Who's going to try to steal these if you get those? So you're going to have to, they're going to tell you, take it or don't take it. And you're going to get to decide. And then you're going to act on what they tell you. And it's up to you to decide who you're going to listen to. So if you look straight ahead, here's the two things. And don't give it away if you can help it. All right, you can turn around. You may not even want to play, but, but it's, it's, it may, you can't look. They can start telling you, take it or don't take it. Right in there. <laughs> good job, good job. You're yours. 
You'd be a bad person to break Robbie Spencer's finger. <laughs> There's a couple folks we ought to break their finger, but not Robbie. All right, let me ask you a question. Could I call you good if you knew the mousetrap's in there and you're yelling, stick your hand in, stick your hand in? Could I call you compassionate? I want you to start thinking about the traits, the attributes of God. Do you think he's setting you up? Do you think he's got something against you? Do you think that's how he's going to train you? I'm going to train you by letting you put your hand in there. It is not gracious. It is not kind. He would not be good if he did not warn you. Guess what God does? He says, this is not the right way. This is not the best way. This is going to hurt you. Our compassionate God warns us of sin. All right, that next step. A compassionate God warns us of sin. The next thing is this. A compassionate God leads us away from sin. A compassionate God leads us away from sin. In the account, it says that Lot hesitated. At that point, they take his, his hand, and it says actually the hands of his family as well, and lead them away. They're hesitating, and these angels take their hands and lead them away. Today, through God's word, and through godly people, and through the Spirit of God that lives in us, God leads us away from sin as well. Let me tell you a couple pieces of that. Number one, He tells us what sin is. He tells us, He empowers us to walk in obedience. Through His Word, He leads us away from sin. Through godly people. Now, we may, we may not think much of that, but here's the truth. No matter what you think of yourself, we're still pack-driven. We still have a pack mentality. Now, we think, I'm an individual, and I'll do what I want to do, but, but we still have a pack mentality as a person, as a human. Well, you know what? If you're around people that are participating in sin and numb to sin and have no problem with sin, I'm going to promise you this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You don't pull them up. They pull you down 100% of the time. The people you're around matter. You need to be around people saying, you know what, I don't want to do that. You know what, there's a better way. You know what, I want to honor Christ. Godly people will lead you away from sin. And then the Spirit of God that lives inside of us will lead us away from sin. You ever, and it happens in two parts. Sometimes when you sin, you just go, ooh, I knew that. I, I, I wish I hadn't have said that. I wish I hadn't have done that. But you know, if we're walking with Christ and we're in His Word and we're listening to His Spirit, He'll lead us on the front side of that. And you go, you know what? I ought not be here. A couple times I go, you know what? You need to shut your mouth. You know what? You need to, to walk off from this. And the Spirit of God will lead us away from sin. And so through His Word, through godly people, through the Spirit of God, God leads us away from sin. You know what a compassionate God is? A God that leads us away from sin. All right, another thing. A compassionate God judges and removes sin. Now, this is when you see this event and go, this doesn't sound very compassionate. But let me show you this. In your neighborhood, there is a criminal, a, an actual robber. They live in your neighborhood. And um, they're actually doing evil acts. They're actually robbing. So when you're at work, they're robbing houses. When you're asleep, they're robbing houses. They actually do that. Now, it always escalates and always Move, grows from there, and so they start recruiting other folks to come over and help them go steal. Then they see your kid go by on a bike, 
And they say, what are you doing? And they start to talk to your sin, to your, your kid about robbing and stealing. And before long, they're active in it. They've pulled some other folks into it. They got the neighborhood kids riled up in a gang, and they're out doing it. And this is actually going on in your neighborhood. What if two houses down there were a police officer, and they said, yeah, but I'm tired when I get off work. Yeah, but they haven't been to my house yet. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. What if down the street there's three or four folks and they said, we saw them go in the house. We see them teaching our kids. And you said, yeah, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to overlook that. Justice requires judgment. If justice is going to be upheld, it requires judgment. It is not just to say, I don't care as long as it's not happening to me. It's not just to say, I don't care if I act like I don't see it. Guess what a, a compassionate God judges and removes sin? You know what's, what's a great thing when God removes and judges sin? It's an act of compassion. That brings us to the last point of this section, and it's this. Discipline is done in love. Now, this is pretty, pretty heavy, and I want you to think through it with me. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. It says that. The Bible says God is love. First John, God is love. Well, I want you to understand this. God doesn't have to deny certain attributes of himself in order to carry out other attributes of himself. He is all the things that he is all the time, fully and totally. Now, what I'm trying to say is this. God is love. And so when he carries out judgment and justice, guess what? He can't be less than love. He does it in love. And when he carries out justice and judgment, he's not less than loving. And so it's not this idea that, well, in the Old Testament, he's just. In the New Testament, he's love. And he's got to set this aside to do this. Or he's got to put this aside to do that. He is all of the things that he is at all the times. Loving, compassionate, honest, trustworthy, gracious, perfect, powerful, mighty. He is all of those things all the way, all the time. So when he judges, he can't help but do it in love. When he establishes justice, that is an act of perfect love. And so we understand discipline, judgment is done in love. God can't help but do everything in love. Let me give you an example of that. And it's, it's silly, but it makes sense. <laughs> maybe, maybe it doesn't anymore, but it used to make sense. Um, a parent disciplining a child. And, and we, were, we were talking about a week ago, um, Carrie and I, about some folks that say, we're not going to tell our kids that, we're, this thing. We're not going to tell them. They need to find it out on their own. We don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to hurt their self-esteem. And so we're not going to be those parents. We had those parents, but we're not going to be those. And so we're not, going to, we're not going to tell them this thing, this point of discipline. And they feel like they're loving parents. Our kids are never mad at us. They love us. And they feel like they're great parents, loving parents, kind parents. And you know the Bible actually says they hate their kids. If you withhold discipline, you know what? You actually hate your kids. Now let me give you an example of that. If there's a busy road by your street and you're to say, you know what? I don't want my kids to be mad at me and I don't want them to hate me and I want them to have, a, when they come in, I want them to have a great self-esteem. So I'm not going to tell them don't play in the street. 
not going to tell them. They're out there and they're riding, they're riding their bike and they're wobbling around and they're getting out by traffic and coming back in. And you say, you know what, I'm not going to hurt their feeling. You're setting that kid up for failure and for disaster and everybody for a whole lot of pain. You, them, the neighbors, whoever's driving the car, you're setting everybody up for a whole lot of pain. You know why you tell them to come in? You know why you tell them you're not riding your bike for two weeks? You know why you may bust their tail? Because you love them enough not to go headlong into sin. That is the truth. God disciplines in love. All right, so now let's do something practical. What are we going to do with that? What does that mean to us? What are we going to do about that? As believers, we must take God at his word, seeing the seriousness of entertaining sin. This is, this is huge. If you'll listen, it'll, it'll help you. This is what we're missing. As believers, we must take God at his word, seeing the seriousness of entertaining sin. Let me give you three practical things. You can actually do these things. First thing is this. Be aware. Be aware. Here's the deal. Sin is sin. Our world says, well, things have evolved. Well, things have changed. Well, it used to be a sin, may not be a sin. Sin is relative. It may be a sin for you, but not for me. Here's the deal. Sin is sin. Sin is gross. Sin always escalates. Sin pulls others in. Sin will destroy you. Sin will hurt others. Sin ends in death. Sin is sin. We have to be aware of that, which means this. We have to see it as sin. Well, I don't know if I want to. We have to see it as sin. We have to call it what it is. God says it's a sin. We have to say it's a sin. We have to be aware of that. Let me tell you this, and here's the, I'll tell you something sad out of that. Satan and the culture and the world have a mission of making people comfortable in sin. And so, you know what? We're not, we'll, we'll redefine it. We'll call it something else. We'll say everybody's doing it. Well, whatever. The world wants you to be comfortable in sin. Here's the sad thing, and it's happening right now. That's also entered into the church. And so you know what? We'll have a better attendance if we won't call sin, sin. And we won't make folks mad if we don't call sin, sin. And our, our attendance and our offerings won't go down if we won't call sin, sin. And then people come in and we say, well, we want you to be comfortable Knowing they're heading for trouble, just the same example, we have to call sin, sin. Now, this is personal. You have to call sin, sin. You have to say that is a sin. You have to be aware of what sin is. You can't be indifferent, apathetic, or numb to sin. If you're going to make it, you have to call sin, sin. Here's the second part of that. We have to be diligent to flee from sin. And, and I, this, this, is, this is a big deal. We have to become, right now, obsessive about this. We have to become fanatical about this. We have to become radical about this. And then let me tell you this. We have to become weird about this. Do you know weird is the actual word that means not like other people? You're weird. You're not like other people. They're all like this. You're weird. You know what? We have to say, if this is a sin, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be introduced to it. I don't want it on my radio. I don't want my kids hearing it. I don't want our movies to have it included. I don't want to laugh at it. I don't want to go where they're, where they're celebrating it. 
You have to be diligent. That is a sin. Let's get away from it. Let's, this is a sin. Let's not entertain it. And we have to be obsessive, radical, fanatical about that. The Bible says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Here's the deal. None. Absolutely none. If it's a sin, get away from it. We're going to play one more game tonight. This one's a little scarier than that one. <laughs> this is a Daisy Red Rider BB gun. It is loaded. That is a real Red Rider BB gun. Let me show you about this BB gun. It's got the safety on. Here's what's going to happen. This is going to be a pretty fun game. We're going to vote on somebody right now, and then I'm going to shoot you with a BB gun right here in this church. I'm going to shoot you flat. With, and here's the thing. This won't kill you. I promise you that. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. <laughs> but I'm going to shoot somebody with this BB gun. Here's the thing about the person. I told you this was the best class. You're lucky you didn't miss it tonight. Now, here's the thing about the person we pick to shoot. You get to decide how close you are when I shoot you, which means you can come up here and square off, or you can go in the foyer, or you can go to the high school football field, or you can drive to Wichita Falls, but I'm going to shoot you with this gun. But you're going to decide how close you're going to be when I shoot you with the BB gun. That makes sense with that. Why doesn't it make sense with sin? We say, oh, I think I'll get a little bit closer. I think I can go with them but not do it. I think I'm bigger than that and I'm tougher than that and I know these things. You know what? I've, and and we, we mess around and we flirt with sin and we get as close to it. And if I told you, I'm going to shoot you with this BB gun, you'd say, I choose to be by Bevo's when you do it. That's where I choose to be. But I'm going to say, well, how about this sin that's going to wreck your home and wreck your family and tear your life all apart? And you say, I think it's funny to watch on TV. I think it's all right to listen to songs about that. I'm going to get close to it. It's just as ludicrous. We have to be fanatical, radical, weird, and flee from sin. And then here's the last part, and this is the best part of the whole lesson. Be aware, call sin, sin. Be diligent to flee. Get away from it. Make it a practice right now. Teach your kids the same, the same for your grandkids. And then here's the last part. Be in Christ. Be in Christ. Now let me tell you why this is the best part of the whole thing. Every person in here has hesitated, has looked back, and has run to sin. And if you've if you got enough craziness to tell me that's not you, I'm going to tell you it is you. It is me. We knew the right thing, we did the wrong thing. We knew what we ought to stop doing, we kept doing that thing. And every person in here, we've run to sin. We've been locked. I, I sit there and go, what a messed up guy. You know what? Every person in here has been locked. You know what our hope for that is? There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we say that and we're easy in that and that we're flipping in that. There is actually forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We're given the righteousness of Christ. We are forgiven. We are restored. We are renewed. And our standing with Christ is as if we'd never left to start with. Here's our answer. We have to be in Christ. And so you're sitting here and you hear this. Man, I've already messed this up. 
You know what? Be in Christ. He'll forgive you. He restores us. He renews us. By faith in Christ. You know what I figured out? Abraham was not righteous, but by faith in Christ he was. You know what we figured out this week? Lot's not righteous either. You know what? By faith in Christ, it's reckoned to any person as righteousness. We have to be in Christ. And then once you're in Christ, we walk in Christ. It's not just being in Christ. It's walking in Christ. Calling sin what it is. Encouraging each other to stay away from it. Walking in Christ. Seeking His Word. The last verse here, Romans 1.32. Listen to this. And although they know the ordinance of God, they know what God has said, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know sin brings death, that we bring condemnation. They not only sin do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You know what? A person in sin, it's not enough to do it. They want somebody else to do it, and they want to say, it's fine that you're doing it. That's the story of this lesson. Be aware, be diligent to flee, be in Christ. No one was injured in the making of our lesson tonight. I'm going to ask if you'll stay and I'll lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your truth. Lord, I pray that we take it and run with it tonight. The oldest person here, sin's dangerous and sin is sin. And we can, we can withstand it in your power and your leading and in your truth. And the youngest person in this building tonight, the youngest kid tonight, hearing a version of this same lesson. Our youth that are being led by a culture to slaughter, they're hearing this tonight. Lord, I pray that it takes hold and I pray that it takes root and I pray that we produce people that understand we are sinners and the remedy for sin is Jesus. But we can also walk with Jesus and, and turn and flee from sin. Help us in that. And then, Lord, I'm thankful that we have forgiveness in Christ tonight. I praise you for that. I worship you for that. I, I come and I stand, I, stay, I stand amazed in your presence. A Savior that loves sinners so much that he would forgive us in the cost of himself. We worship you tonight. We love you tonight, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Glad you were here.